Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to David Saltzer about his new book, Music, Math and Mind, The Physics and Neuroscience of Music. Why does a clarinet play at lower pitches than a flute? What does it mean for sound to be in or out of tune? How are emotions carried by music? Do other animals perceive sound like we do? How might musicians use math to come up with new ideas? This book offers a lively exploration of the mathematics, physics, and neuroscience that underlie music in a way that readers without scientific background can follow. David Salzer, also known as in, in the musical world as Dave Soldier, explains why the perception of music uh, encompasses the physics of sound, the function functions of the ear and deep brain auditory pathways, and the physiology of emotion. Written for musicians and music lovers with, uh, with any level of science and math proficiency, including none, music, mind, and math demystifies how music works while testifying to its beauty and wonder. Well, David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Galena. Looking forward. So as we're living through the unprecedented times of the recent global pandemic, I was wondering if you could start by reflecting on how has it affected you and your work and maybe some main takeaways that you have gathered from this experience. Okay, well, that's addressing your what your your request backwards, I guess as you know, from the standpoint of a biomedical researcher who's uh, dabbles in immunology. Um, it makes me think that we're going to have to become better at a lot of things. <laughs> One is that we're probably going to have more of these. It's, it's hard to believe that that won't happen. And uh, a, a, this happens to be a virus, but it's quite likely to happen with bacteria as well. And one concern that I have is that because of the way we've set up the economy and society, that pharma, neither in Switzerland, nor in Eastern Europe, nor in the United States, uh, cares very much about antibiotics. Um, we're sure to get issues with, uh, I mean, we, we already see this with tuberculosis. We're, we're sure to get issues where we have fewer um, effective antibiotic treatments. Um, and uh, we really should be putting a lot of energy in, in, into this. Um, some of these infections obviously are, are quite worrisome. Uh, I remember going to a talk by Joshua Lederberg about 20, over 20 years ago, I'm going to say about 25. And he said, well, the HIV virus is so bad as it is. What if it was spread like a common cold virus? No reason it can't be. And it, it could destroy the, spe- the species. And I think we have to... Um, we have to wake up. So that's the second part. Your first part is how has it affected me uh, personally, and, and I guess our laboratory. Um, 
I think our lab has done a tremendous job given the problems. Um, as of yesterday, so right now, uh, New York City, where I live, is being hit by the Omicron variant very hard. Um, two weeks ago, about 2% of the tests were coming in as, as positive for COVID. Right now, it's running 15%. So it's jumped from 2 to 15% on a straight lineup. So it's probably going to go higher than it already is. And uh, this has happened in an extremely short amount of time. Um, so uh, as of yesterday, I stopped going into the lab because I, an hour away by subway. So I typically spend about two hours a day on a crowded uh, subway train. So I'm working from home for the new, for uh, at least this uh, period. Um, but given what we've been going through, I think the lab has been very productive. And when there were about three months when really nobody could work except our animal care person would come in and, you know, come in, take care of the animals, leave as quickly as possible. Um, when things were really bad and they were much worse than they are now. I mean, the numbers are the, the, the fraction of the population is probably about to be higher than it was even in uh, late spring, early summer of 2020 when New York City got hit very hard. But uh, fewer people are, are very sick. And of course, the uh, people treating them have become much better at treating people with COVID. And obviously, the vaccines are the, the biggest, uh, biggest improvement. So uh, it's, it's not as bad at all as it was. And uh, New York City also got the brunt of it quite early. It's a little bit reminiscent, but, but uh, fortunately, it's, it's much less worrisome. So going back to the last thing that you asked and that I addressed first, I think we better learn from this everything we can. So some of the some of the points are are, are clear, um, and and we better do it now. Now, regarding your interests, your specific interests, one of the big worries has been whether there seems to be any tie-in with exacerbating uh, Parkinson's disease. And uh, so far, it certainly does not show any signs of being anything like the Spanish flu, and uh, likely the flu, for whatever reasons, it's it's really speculation, but happy to speculate with you if you like. Um, seems like flu is much more likely to have long-term consequences. On the other hand, there are all sorts of neurological disorders which are associated with COVID. And there is a, um, uh, the doctors are saying there's frequently a worsening of symptoms from people who have Parkinson's after COVID. Yes, for sure, because we were getting early reports that uh, some of the disorders uh, were somewhat linked to COVID infections, but further, it wasn't really confirmed as, as such. It was in very small samples. Right now, there, uh, I mean, but there are big samples for the numbers of people with COVID. So if it was like this, the Spanish flu and bonacomos encephalitis, which was a genuine worry early on, um, leading to diseases like Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and so on, um, we probably would have seen some sign of that so far, and, and so far there really hasn't been. So cautiously optimistic, you know, you don't know what's going to show up years from now. But uh, if it were like Bonacomos, there would already be plenty of people 
with motor disorders and, and there aren't. So uh, now nothing, no reason that that can't happen with future infection. I mean, it's happened before. And in terms of your lab, do you think you're better equipped to handle this situation this time? You mean with this uh, Omicron variant versus the Alpha and the Delta variants? Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we're necessarily better equipped to tell the, the truth. Um, uh, I, I do think that, I mean, people are continuing to do their experiments. And so they come in, they do the experiments. And then I think uh, most people are trying to analyze their data at home. Um, so I think the laboratory, frankly, is quite a safe place. People, uh, you know, try to keep uh, their distance and so on. Um, I think the problem is more transportation to and fro, especially here in New York City, where people tend to take public transportation. Um, you know, you, if you live in, in the city, you really don't want to drive. It's, uh, the traffic is, is horrible. It's very difficult to park the car. So, uh, you know, usually I think having a good public transportation system has been great for large cities like this one. But uh, in this case, it, in this case, uh, um, you know, you, if, you, if you take a, a subway or city bus or what have you, you're, you are right now when the, the, the fraction of positive people is so high, you're very likely to be exposed. So could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So you already told us that you work uh, in a lab, so you run a lab? Yeah. So I run a, a laboratory at, the, uh, at, the at Columbia University, and uh, we do all sorts of different kinds of uh, work. Uh, it tends to be uh, it tends to be focused on the uh, on, on how learning occurs, and so that would, in particular, we we look at kinds of learning that need practice and environmental feedback, and a lot of that works on a circuit, uh, which includes a part of the brain called the basal ganglia, and uh, we try to figure out what changes um, at a very basic level? How do the connections change? How, how does the neurotransmission, meaning the you know, neurotransmission is essentially named after the, the radio because they're uh, around the same time that synapses were becoming understood, the connections between cells and the nervous system is about the same time that, that radio uh, was becoming very popular. So. Uh, there's this uh, history of the brain being thought of, modeled, depending upon whatever the most popular new technology of the time is. So right now, people talk about the brain as a computer or software, or virtual reality, or deep learning, or what the hell. And uh, 110 years ago, it was radio. Marie Curie uh, decided to name her the uh, phenomena that she discovered radioactivity. And the reason is because she named it after the radio. And she thought, well, oh, let's take, I don't know, it'd be sort of like if, if uh, we called what we're working on deep learning in the brain or, or, I don't know, AI in the brain doesn't really work, but machine learning of the brain or something like that. So Marie Curie took that term. 
And, and then the neuroscientists of the time, uh, including the guy who came up with the name Synapse and uh, Sherrington. Uh, they, and, and these original papers, you'll see that they talk about receivers and transmitters, and that became neurotransmission. And hmm. in the first paper describing a receptor for neuro, neurotransmitter, it, uh, he would sometimes say receiver or he would say receptor. So it was a, a model of uh, how communication could occur. You could have a radio antenna, which is your transmitter. So that became transmission. And you could have a radio at home and that's your receiver or that became receptor. Um, now, why did I go, why did I diverge off into that, Lena? I know it was in response to one of your questions, but I think I took such a big divergence that I kind of lost the track. So in addition to your neuroscientist hat, you also wear a musician hat. So I was wondering, does it really resonate with you, those metaphors that uh, people are making? Well, uh, yeah. So you didn't answer my question, but that's good. I'm glad you brought up another question. So you're asking about the metaphor and you're using one, resonance. And of course, uh, we use resonance to describe physical phenomena and we use it to describe music. And, uh, you know, the, the uh, body of, say, a string instrument is essentially a resonator. So uh, we're full of metaphors. Yeah. So I guess the answer to your question is yes. We, we're using metaphors uh, in common with uh, biology and physics and, and neuroscience as a branch of those things and chemistry. And uh, we also use them in the arts. So then uh, going back to uh, your career and how you got where you are, can you tell us how was your career journey? Well, uh, as, as in high school, I got very interested in plants. Um, particularly, I got interested in, in wild plants. And my, uh, the reason I did was there was a writer, in fact, you can find his books. Now, it's, they're going to be a little more pertinent actually much more pertinent to people that live in North America for reasons that are, will be obvious. So this fellow's name was Yule Gibbons. And Yule Gibbons used to write books. His most famous was called Stalking the Wild Asparagus. And what he liked to do is walk through the woods and uh, find, identify all the plants and figure out which ones you could eat. Um, and I became very enamored of that. And I would try to learn all of the plants in, where I grew up, which was Illinois. So I, I, but I was in a part of Illinois, it's mostly cornfields, but the, the part I grew up in was the foothills of the Ozark Mountains. And there's a lot of forest. So I would walk around the forest uh, with plant guidebooks and try to figure out every single plant. And it never succeeded, but, but I learned a lot. And so I became very interested in, in botany. And then when I went to college, which was in Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan, um, I just took courses and everything, and I had to figure out what to get a, uh, a, a degree in. And so I decided to get a degree in horticulture. Uh, one of the reasons was because I was reading about the Green Revolution and Norman Borlaug, who actually was a professor from uh, University of Minnesota, I believe, which is close by. Um, and Borlaug uh, 
introduced the so-called green revolution, helping to come up with types of corn that could feed more people in Latin America and types of rice that could feed more people in Southeast Asia. Now, he's been very heavily criticized uh, in the media and academia for a long time, and for some good reason, but mostly he remains a hero of mine. Uh, I, think he, I think he genuinely saved uh, many millions of people's lives and gave them better lives, but it, did, it does have issues. It made people very, uh, it made farmers very dependent on so-called uh, monoculture and growing the same varieties. So you end up losing a lot of biological genetic diversity. Um, and he realized that, uh, but still, nevertheless, it is an issue with uh, this sort of uh, approach, the so-called green revolution. Also, uh, because the plants grew so much more avidly that it made society as a whole more dependent on, on fertilizer and to some extent pesticide. So there's a lot of improvement to be done. Anyway, I got very enamored of that and, and started to study that. So when I graduated, um, frankly, I couldn't, I was trying to figure out what, well, what's the next step. And that was sort of early days still of recombinant DNA, which now every laboratory in the world does. It's, it's nothing. But at the time was, seemed that sort of the, the edgy new technology. Uh, again, the deep learning or radio or, or whatever of its time. And uh, I decided that was something I wanted to study. Um, and so I, I tried to study that at University of Florida in Gainesville. And then um, eventually ended up, it wasn't a terribly good place for that, although I learned quite a bit there. Uh, in, in Florida, we tried to come up with new varieties of blueberries, which was very successful. And now it's a, actually kind of an enormous industry. But the, uh, to, to get into more biology, eventually I ended up at Columbia University, where I still am now, to earn a PhD. And they made us, I went in there wanting to study plant genetics, essentially. That's, that's really what I wanted to do. But I found out that uh, you couldn't really do that there. <laughs> and they made all the graduate students take a course in neuroscience. Uh, that was a requirement. And I had no idea, frankly, about that, that so much was known in the field. And I sort of jumped ship. I, I, switched, uh, I switched career path and uh, decided to study the brain and the nervous system. So I've been, uh, for better or worse, for the world and myself, um, I've been doing that ever since. But it's truly refreshing to hear that you had such a non-linear journey towards neuroscience. So I was wondering, were there any mentors that really supported you along the way? Uh, I, I think my primary mentor was my PhD advisor. Uh, his name was Eric Holtzman. And he did very important work in that, um, among other things, he discovered that synaptic vesicles recycle. And that sounds weird, you know, that how, how could they not have known that? But um, somebody had to figure that out. They figured it out using, and this will make sense to you, Lena. At the time, they were using uh, horseradish peroxidase to come up with uh, a very uh, electron-dense uh, 
precipitates in reactions that you could examine with electron microscopy. And what he did was very simple. He, he simply um, incubated some neurons with uh, horseradish peroxidase, this protein. And the protein, I believe, is the protein that gives horseradish that sharp taste. And, um, and he would stimulate the neurons. And then they would have, uh, he would react them. He'd fix them and react them. And you could see that the, this protein, the peroxidase, was actually inside the synaptic vesicles. Now, if you did the same experiment, but then you re-stimulated, you remove the, the protein, and now you re-stimulate, uh, you don't see it anymore. So that was really the discovery that, oh, these vesicles must take it up and then re-release it. So that was called recycling of synaptic vesicles. Um, and then when I was in his lab, we, uh, my discovery that was my PhD thesis was that they can recycle using endosomes. Uh, which again is something that everybody knows right now that you can do is use endosomal recycling, but at the time was was not known. Um, so, uh, so I would say Eric was my major mentor uh, when I was coming up, um, and I, I, I did a, a postdoc with Steve Rayport, who still works at Columbia. Uh, he. He was, you know, the, the, I joined him as his first uh, postdoc student. And uh, together, we, we did quite a bit of work on, we, we figured out a lot of the molecular mechanism of amphetamine, and we developed the first uh, system for growing dopamine neurons in culture. And we also discovered that dopamine neurons could release glutamate which was a very hard paper to publish. It took us three years to publish the paper because people at the time didn't believe that a neuron could, could release two different classical neurotransmitters. Um, so uh, I would say that those two were probably the people that helped me the most, but there were a lot of people that inspired me um, I was very inspired by hearing a talk by Barbara McClintock. Um, and I was very inspired by um, Anthony Fauci, who is, of course, very well known now. But at the time, he came in when I was in graduate school, and the AIDS was uh, uh, incurable at the time. Still incurable, but it's much better treatable. And he gave a talk on how understanding that first uh, it is caused by a virus and that we have to study the virus. And then he came up and he said, I think we're going to work on protease inhibitors uh, because it will block the specific step. And I just thought that was astonishing. And then watching how his group and others develop these protease inhibitors. And it's no, it's no exaggeration to say again, to, like Orlock, tens of millions of people are alive now. Uh, because of these discoveries. Um, now, it's, we still don't have a perfect way to, to treat uh, HIV, AIDS, but uh, it's in, uh, incomparably better than it was in the early days. So uh, those were a couple of inspirations. And then as I got you know, more into neurotransmission, I, I continued to have other sort of role models uh, 
the late Paul Greengard, who died about two years ago, was sort of a uh, inspiration. No, he was an inspiration for me. And it's that's a um, in a kind of an unusual way. So when I went to, I was always in small labs. So when I was in the first person's lab, Eric, Eric's lab, I was the only grad student, or at times there would be two grad students, but sometimes I was the only graduate student in the lab. And there was one technician, so it was a very small lab. And then when I was in Steve labs, uh, Steve's lab, uh, I would either be the only postdoc where most there would be two postdocs. And um, so I was always in these environments where it was two or three people, very small labs. And when I found out that I could run my own laboratory, I said, you know, I've never really had a lesson on how to run a larger laboratory. So I'd given, I'd met Paul Greengard because I gave a talk to his, uh, his lab and his lab might've been 60 people, you know, really large. I think there were 40 postdocs. That's how big it was. And I was very impressed with Paul because uh, I came in, you're supposed to give a normal talk of about 40 minutes. And it lasted for three hours because he just kept asking more and more questions. And they were very in insightful, thoughtful kind of questions. So when I found out I could start my own laboratory, uh, I, I called Paul Greengard and I said, Paul, uh, can I just go to your lab and watch how you run it for a while? And I think he said something like, well, that is kind of weird, but sure. And so I went up there and spent three days just watching how Greengard ran his laboratory. Um, and I learned a great deal, um, especially about how to motivate people and how to try to get them to do very good work. And so I would say that uh, in that way, that Paul Greengard was also a particular uh, role model for me. And uh, I would also mention a fellow that recently retired, but has... Uh, I keep uh, close contact with Mark Whiteman and Whiteman was a pioneer in the dopamine field. And uh, I just read it. He was sort of, um, in, a, in a sense, we were kind of competitors, uh, but we were, it was a great competition. You know, having a competitor who's also a friend um, can be extraordinarily valuable because you, you push each other to try to do, to do better and better work. So uh, I, I would have to also acknowledge uh, Mark Whiteman in a way as a mentor as well, even though I never directly worked with him or under him. And, and the same with Paul Greengard. I, I was never a Greengard protege in a direct way, but in, in an indirect way, I was. That's excellent. That's so, so important for students uh, to hear that she had uh, quite quite a lot of support and uh, that's something that sh they should be looking for. Well, the support, you know, what did not come through any traditional means. And uh, this is, so if one of your people said, oh, I like the way Dave Solzer runs his lab, uh, maybe I should call him and see how he does it. I would say yes. And part of the reason I would say yes is because Greenguard said yes to me. So if that happens to you, Galena, you, you know, you could, that would be something you could do. Um, I think you have to uh, often work outside of the strictures, and it's very strange. Now, Galena, when you run, when you do run your own laboratory, 
and I'm not kidding about this. You, you may think I am, but I'm not. Nobody tells you anything. You get no advice, no help, nothing. So when I started my laboratory, uh, it was, here's a little space. And uh, it took about five months before they gave me the key. So I had my own lab, but I couldn't get in. Mm. That's how, that's how disorganized a place like Columbia University, which is this big sprawling campus. That's how disorganized it could be, but it's true. It took about five months for me to get a, a key to my own lab. And, you know, I put a desk in the lab, you know, there's no office or anything. And nobody tells you anything, nothing. It's just like that. And uh, I had $200,000 in startup money, which didn't even come from the university, it came from a foundation. And that was it. So um, figuring out how you start is, can be a, a real challenge. And there, there kind of aren't any rules. There isn't a path forward. So this is why I, I, think, I think I have to encourage people at your stage to be just not give up. Keep trying different things until they work. <laughs> and and that, that's kind of how it is. I mean, probably we should give courses in, to people on how, how to be a manager, a lab head the chief scientist, all this kind of thing. But to my knowledge, those things don't exist. There, there's an interesting book by the, you know, deservedly probably best known neuroscientist in history, Santiago Ramoni Cajal. Um, it, he calls advice for a young scientist. Uh, you can download it from the web. And uh, it's got a lot of good advice. Now, it is, uh, it is a bit sexist, but he also wrote it 120 years ago. Um, and, and that sexism isn't really what you might think of as sexism. It's just that he takes it for granted that the, uh, that the lab head is going to be male, right? So uh, if, if you can get beyond that, uh, which is if, certainly, of course, that's offensive. Uh, but if you can get beyond that, I think you can learn quite a bit. Most of the advice that he gave them is, is still good now. Oh, it's not only sexist, it's a bit nationalist. <laughs> he really thinks there's a superiority of, the, uh, of Spanish uh, scientists. Uh, he also, uh, to be fair, he also really criticizes Spanish scientists in comparison with French, British, Russian, etc. So he does both. So apart from neuroscience, you're also an accomplished musician. So can you tell us how did you get interested in music? That's a hard one for me. I've always, I've grown up with music. I've, I've played instruments, I don't know, since, since I was eight. So um, I've always had a love for music. Uh, I did spend a couple of years making a living as a musician. Um, and uh, it's a, you know, it's an adventure. I'm glad I did it, but I'm also, it's, it's very hard making a living as a musician. Um, and I continue to make music, but because I'm making a living, it's something else. It allows me, it, you know, allows me to work on the music I want to work on. So I'm, I'm, you know, I know not everybody can, I think these days, most musicians make a living doing something else. There's just not enough money to support many people. This was not always true. Um, 
I remember in the 80s and 90s, I, 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 and this will sound like an exaggeration, I knew hundreds of people making living as a musician. I mean, personally, I knew hundreds. Um, now I know very, very few. So uh, until we figure our, our way out of that box, musicians are going to have to make a living doing something other than creating music. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wish I had a better answer for it. Um, I think it's, and it's not only true only for musicians, but on the other hand, I mean, I think because of the boom and things like, uh, uh, you know, television productions and serials and so on, there are many more people making a living in essentially filmmaking than there ever were before. It's, just, it's the people writing the music for those films uh, make less. And, and now um, they used to be able to hire well, I say we, we used to be able to hire orchestras to play the, uh, the film soundtrack, which was just great fun. And, and you learned a lot and it was very creative, frustrating, but creative and a real challenge. And now you're pretty much expected to make it all at home on your computer, which is a different kind of challenge and worthwhile, but you're not working with an orchestra anymore. And, that, and that's really a major loss. Um, you know, it's in that way, it's like science. Would you really rather do everything on your computer screen all the time? Or would you uh, and, and do it all with uh, analytical methods by writing software? Or would you rather work with other human beings? So that's that's something that's a little bit lost. right? Now. Um, I hope it comes back. Anyway, I'm lucky that while most of us musicians have to make a living doing something else, even if it's teaching music. Um, at least I'm doing something that I, I, I really care about. It's, you know, science is, studying nature is wonderful. Um, as you already know, Kalina, it's, a, it's in some ways it's a tough living. It's tough in different ways that other livings are tough, but it's, it's still, enormous challenge all the time uh so but I, I'm, I'm grateful that i can do something i care about you know so many other people are doing so, uh, jobs as you know i mean most most people don't really want to do the jobs <laughs> and for us scientists it's different we actually do want to do the jobs yeah for sure so your latest book is Music, Math, and Mind, The Physics and Neuroscience of Music. So can you tell us how did you come to writing it? Well, ultimately, I mean, I was teaching a course in this stuff, which I, you know, I, I volunteered to teach. It's a course in, in the School of the Arts at the university. But the reason I came to write it is because I realized these are questions I have. And... The question, just very essential questions to what sound and music are. Uh, starting off with things like exactly what is a sound wave? Or we have scales like do, re, mi, right? But why are they that? Why aren't they something else? Or um, how are rhythms made up? Or how does your ear perceive sound? Then how does your the, the brain understand that one pitch or one rhythm is different than another one. How do we derive emotion from sound and music? 
So a lot of essential, very, very basic questions uh, that are not taught to musicians. So they have music theory classes, but it's not that kind of theory. Music theory classes are to help you become expert in a particular style. So it's learning stylistic rules and guidance. Uh, very important because we tend to create work. I mean, I'll say music, but it goes for all sorts of work that makes sense and is popular and has an audience in our time and place. So learning how to make the sound of jazz or of country music or of heavy metal or of organ music in the church or, or what have you, you know, what to fulfill your role in society, performing or creating a particular style, that is important. You have to be able to speak that language. Uh, but what about all these questions that underlie every kind of music? Well, there aren't books that go into that. If there is a book that goes into that, in, in my opinion, it would be uh, from the 1860s by a fellow in Germany named von Helmholtz, who wrote a book called The Sensations of Tone. Uh, and there and there have been other, you know, of, of course, there have been other things that kind of help towards that. But these kind of questions, they're, they're actually not in a book. And while Helmholtz, it would be the exception to what I just said. A lot of it is in that book. That book's 180 years old or something like that. What, am I doing my math right? 160 years old. And uh, lots been found out since then. And it's written in a kind of 19th century fashion that students these days, very few are actually going to read have, or have the patience to read. Um, so because two-thirds of my book, I mean, Helmholtz couldn't have written because that knowledge wasn't there. Uh, and also how each of these things relates to music that people actually make or listen to is not really in Helmholtz's book, as great as it is. I mean, it's, it was a, and continues to be an extremely in, uh, uh, inspirational book for me. I've, I felt something else was needed. But why was it needed? Because I knew that I needed it for myself. I need to understand these things. And I know that if, if you feel strongly that a question is interesting, important, that other people will think the same thing. Not all other people. And there's no reason why people should be particularly interested in these questions, but some are. And some are going to use this knowledge to help them appreciate things and understand things more. And some will use it to in their own creation because they'll understand the fundament, uh, fundamentals in a different way. And they'll start considering uh, new approaches. So that's the reason, that's the reason for the book. That's, that's what drove me to write it. In your book, you cover a lot of really fascinating science and me and I, th I think everyone else who's listening are so really interested in all of it. So can we start with some of the basics? And can you describe what fundamentally is the sound? Oh, boy, start with an easy one, huh? <laughs> 
yeah, that that's going to be tough to because you could say, well, it's it's waves in air, but of course you can have sound in water. Um, Kepler, Johannes Kepler thought you could have sound, you couldn't perceive it, but there can be sound in, in the movement of the planets. Um, he knew there wasn't air in the cosmos, so he knew it wasn't actually making sound, but he kind of considered it sound and harmony nonetheless, and that's why he wrote his book called The Harmony of the World, which is the basic, by the way, I don't expect you to believe this as I say it, but I'm, I'm going to tell you it's true and you'll have to convince yourself through reading and history, but it's sort of the basic, that book is sort of the basics of modern physics, but it's a music book. And, and the idea was uh, the master creator uh, would not design a solar system that sang out of tune. And out of that, he discovered the, uh, the uh, uh, that the planets move in ellipses, the elliptical movement of the planets is what I'm trying to say, and uh, came up with uh, theorems to describe this. And to try to get deeper is what uh, motivated Newton to uh, help develop calculus and to understand force and uh, mass and attraction and gravity. So sort of the basic of our contemporary world came through somebody trying to think about sound in the cosmos where there is no air or water to carry it. But in fact, there is kind of sound in the air, <laughs> in the cosmos, because we can pick up vibrations, granted of light or, or gravity, that happen at specific frequencies. And uh, for instance, there are uh, uh, rotating stars that emit, at, that emit frequencies around 400 hertz, which is close to the A above middle C. And there are gravitational waves that uh, are very slow frequencies, more than 50 octaves below the lowest note on the panel, but they're frequencies. Uh, they're repeating frequencies. They are notes, in other words. So uh, asking exactly what is sound, I'm dancing all over giving a direct answer to that question. Uh, but I, I suppose the part of it would be there would have to be a uh, there would have to be a disturbance in some kind of media, whether it be air or water or what have you, and then it has to be perceived. So the perception is the, the the old the old question: if a tree falls in the forest and it doesn't make you know the and if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there, doesn't make sound. And by the logic I, I just said, the answer, what, there would be an answer. It's a conundrum, right? It's a paradox, but I think it actually does have an answer. The answer is no. It, the perception has to be part of sound. Without that, the, the movement in the air or what have you uh, exists, but it's not, it's not a sound. I think sound must be perceived. Um, did that help at all? Yes, for sure. And as you say, it's not easy and straightforward. Maybe all of us have some kind of understanding of what it is, but then when we go deep into it, it just turns out to be so much more. So I was wondering then if I'm we... glad you didn't ask me now to define music because it'd be <laughs> I'd be dancing around the same 
the same points. I mean, not the same points, but I'd be dancing around it the same way. So then when we go to the perception of sound by the brain, so can you describe how do we actually get what is the sound? Oh, dear. What a big question. And one that's not, one that's very active. And uh, 10 years from now, I hope we'll know a great deal more than we do now. Uh, but the, uh, the synaptic pathways are, are actually pretty well, pretty well understood, although certainly they're going to be more and more interconnections that are going to be unveiled um, with, with time, with time and effort. But the uh, connections between, you know, how the first neural step occurs at, at the uh, hair cell and then sends those signals through the auditory nerve and from there to the cochlear nucleus and, and midbrain connections and then onto the thalamus, onto the auditory cortex. Uh, and even some of the processing in the in those places, particularly auditory cortex, are, uh, are somewhat understood. So a, a good deal amount of it, the bases uh, do appear to be there. But I think when you're asking the kinds of questions that you probably really care about, um, how, so there's such a thing, for instance, as being in tune and out of tune. And I believe that, I think it's likely that all animals with an auditory cortex can figure this out. Even people that are tone deaf um, can, can figure out in tune, out of tune. People and other animals can perceive rhythms. But exactly how that's done, uh, we, we understand a lot of the physics, we understand a lot of the math, but your whole circuit that says, oh, that's out of tune and makes you realize conscious that it is, uh, which I think is sort of where you're getting at with your question. That's not really quite there yet. And that's not true just for music and arts perceptions. It's, it's uh, I think it's true for, gee, almost anything that's sort of advanced, uh, advanced, uh, uh, interpretation that involves the cortex and the stratum and so on. Um, and it's, it's going to take a, a good deal more work. Again, I'm not sure I actually answered your question directly. You could try me again if you like. Yeah, definitely. So I'm just going to follow up and ask, what do emotions contribute to our processing and perception of sound? Well, clearly in music, and not just music, but the arts, uh, the ability of someone who's making it to trigger an emotion in, in somebody who's perceiving it is, is a goal. I mean, it's a central goal, maybe the most important in some ways. Uh, you know, does, does to obvious ones, I mean, did J.S. Bach writing for the organ and the choir of the church help to inspire religious fervor or at least awe. Um, of course, of course, that's what he was going for. Uh, you know, does, uh, did B.B. King mean to inspire a feeling of loneliness or, or uh, 
schadenfreude. Of course he did. Um, did Michael Jackson's music make you want to get up and dance? Of course, of course they do. So, I mean, this is a goal. This is uh, the ability to wring out emotions is, is central. And to understand that, you don't really need, none of those people I just mentioned understood any of these uh, brain pathways. You need to it. They need to it how things work. And a great deal of that is, of course, it's the time and place and the culture you're living in. So that, uh, you know, B.B. King could, was not that different than his audience or Bach from his or Michael Jackson from his. And they knew, they understood the audience very well. They were part of the culture. Uh, what's amazing, though, I suppose, is that you could be a fan of any of those three and yet pick up the emotion from the other two. And the fact that we could still do that in a box case that it's hundreds of years later, and we could still do that, that that's pretty remarkable. <laughs> that means we're really, we're really receiving the communication of people from a long time before. Uh, I, 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 sometimes I wonder about that because it's, it's, of course, we're in one way, we're only receiving it one way. Right. I mean, we could Bach can talk to us. We can't talk back to him. But in another way, he kind of imagined what we what we would be like. I mean, even his when he wrote, he wasn't the listeners weren't right there. They might be at the church the next week, but they weren't. He's, he was thinking of the future, too. He was thinking of the people that would perceive his work in the future. So that's a. a at least, at least for me, that's really a kind of um, interesting thing to ponder. And I think it applies to science, too. You know, as scientists, we, we're, if we're lucky, we can do some good work. And then, like all animals, we're going to die. And yet some of what we did, that's us, um, in this case, Bach and B.B. King and Michael Jackson's creations. And they continue to be part of people's lives. Does that strike you as odd as it, as it does me? For me, this is truly fascinating. Uh, fascinating, And the whole line of thought, if I go on and extrapolate it uh, to even to the cave paintings. So would you imagine what kind of understanding would we have of uh, early humans if we knew their soundscape? Oh, that's great. That's a great question. Uh, I'm sure it would change things a great deal. It's the term soundscape, to my knowledge, I, maybe, well, at least it was early adopted. I was corrected the other day. By, I forgot who came up with the term, but really Bernie Krauss, who records environments around the world. Um, and has, I think he has a show right now running in, in Europe uh, about the great animal orchestra. But his... Uh, his point is that by hearing the entirety of the environmental sound, not just studying the sounds of one animal in isolation, we can reconstruct a great deal about that environment. Uh, there's another, so I really urge you to look at Bernie Krause's uh, books and recordings. Uh, one thing that's very timely, so you can show the degradation of an environment by his theory is that animals will evolve their sound in order to find particular niches in the environment. 
so that you might have a frequency where there's little bird song. So some bird is going to evolve to fill that so that they can perceive each other. So all of this back and forth plus immediate back and forth is happening in the natural environment. As it becomes degraded, say, for instance, due to deforestation, then you start getting big gaps in the frequency spectrum. And so you can really, that's an example, an important one, of what you can learn by, by, by soundscape. Now, can you do this also in human cultures? I'll preface this by saying that this is something that is, for some reason, extremely uh, controversial in the musicology field. I'm not a musicologist. I, I don't even know how to define it, really. But, but it is, it, it's very uh, controversial. So Alan Lomax, who, record, who traveled around the world, and especially the southern United States, and recorded people, particularly before the radio would hit and, and the music would change. Uh, and in, in, in my way of thinking, he, he's probably actually the most uh, influential uh, musician of the 20th century, even though people don't know his own music. He, he did it by recording. And it's responsible. I know this sounds crazy. I'll, I'll just say, Check it out yourself for convincing them. But he sort of started the Chicago blues to some extent through his discovery of Muddy Waters, helped to establish rock and roll by uh, he and his father discovering Lead Belly, who was the inspiration for the Beatles, and um, on and on and on. The folk music scene, because he was Pete Seeger's mentor, uh, certain movements and jazz by recording Jelly Roll Morton and Spanish music, which became the basis of some of Miles Davis's work, especially sketches of Spain, but had further, uh, further developments. Anyway, so this guy, Lomax, had a, uh, a, a set of postulates that he called cantometrics. And the idea was that you could discover a great deal about society from its music and dance. And you could even call it metrics because he, he tried to come up with scores. For instance, do people dance on their own? Like if you go to a rave and people are in ecstasy and they're jumping up and down um, and they're dancing by themselves, that would mean something culturally different than say uh, going to the Eastern part of, of Switzerland and going to a polka party where, where people might even be doing line dances with everybody trying to do the same kind of move. So what would that mean for differences in society? Um, what about singing? Is it choral singing, uh, solo singing? Uh, is it antiphonal where people have answer, uh, question and answer? Is it improvised uh, like, you know, John Coltrane, or is it strictly written out like Beethoven? Um, all these things come up, up with uh, statements, in, in his opinion, about how people think of their own society and culture, uh, how, their, how their cultures are, are run, um, their perception of their position 
in the societies. So uh, again, it's super controversial. Um, Alan died at least 25 years ago, I'd say, uh, probably more. So uh, he's not around to defend it. And I think people probably criticized it for some good reasons, because when you come up with a whole model like that, you really want to have ways to test your hypothesis, just as you do in neuroscience or chemistry. You know, it's easy to come up with hypotheses from some observation. It's very hard to test it. And that's not just true of you know, theories in the arts. That's true of even, I'm afraid, theories in, in cosmology or particle physics or uh, you know, even, even behavior. You know, it can be very hard to test your, your hypotheses. But it's still incumbent on us to try to figure out how to do that. Uh, so with that major qualification, I suspect there's a great deal to be learned in the soundscape. And that if you went back to, uh, forgive me if I mispronounce this, the caves of Almatira and got the soundscape, as well as the, uh, the inkling that we can get of the uh, visual artscape, I think we would learn a tremendous amount uh, about those cultures. Um, we do have recovery of a relatively small number of musical instruments, mostly flutes made from uh, bird bones, and in one case from a mammoth tusk, that go back about 40,000 years. And there are um, some other ancient instruments that have been rediscovered and getting you know, much, much later. Uh, we actually have quite a few instruments that have been recovered from Pompeii. So um, I think we have moderately good idea. And I'm also going to give another example here. The way that we listen to the music of the, of the uh, Renaissance and uh, you know period before the Renaissance. So let's say the music from around the 1100s up to sometime in the 1400s. Now this is very, this is music that musicians and music lovers listen to a lot. Palestrina, Michaud, Thomas Tallis, William Byrd, on and on. Hildegard Van Biggen, you know, many. Um, I am pretty sure, and, and, and I, I know this now more by having gone through Kepler's book and, and trying to understand what he's talking about. And, and playing the stuff myself, that we're, we're not tuning it properly. And if we use the tunings, these just intonation tunings, we won't get into it uh, right now, but you can read it in my book, and, and there, I'm sure there are other books that go into this. But if we use the tunings that they use, suddenly what sounds like kind of arbitrary movement and the uh, an arbitrariness that you'd hear in the old motets that we resurrect now and sing, uh, disappears. You go like, that's why it's that way. It's that way and not another way because the instruments that they used sound right. And if we, had, we were using those same instruments in the same tuning now, we would be writing music that sounds like them. Uh, the reason that we write so differently in a, in a in a large part, I don't expect anybody to believe this until they actually try. But if you take jazz chords and you play them in the intonation that was used in uh, 
that period, they sound terrible. Whereas if you use the chords that they used in their intonation and play them on a, uh, on a uh, contemporary uh, tuning system, 12-tone equal tuning system, they sound okay, but they don't sound as profound and lovely. They, they, don't, they don't ring in the same way. They don't have the same emotional uh, context and richness. So a certain amount of our musical soundscape is based on things, you know, very, very basic things, which ch change. They change for a variety of reasons, and then we can't really quite recover it. Um, while I'm just saying all this, I'd like to give another example. Uh, that music, the, for instance, the blues, which is something that I'm old enough. I mean, I've been around enough, so I saw Muddy Waters and B.B. King and all these people that are essentially the ancestors of rock music and hip-hop, which are probably the two most popular genres around the world. But they came out of people like Muddy Waters and B.B. King, uh, Bo Diddley, people like that. You know, you can't sound like them anymore. You can sound like you came out of them and that you're that you do music, that you learn from them, but you have to transform it to yourself in your own way because you can't sound like that. You, you, nobody could sound like them. You couldn't even be a carbon copy clone. To, to have the voices they had and the phrasing they had, you had to grow up there in that time. You had to grow up in the church. You had to grow up with the kind of singing that they, they had there and, and the singing that people did when they were working, right? People down there would, would work in, on the farms and the fields and, and in the churches and in the, uh, the, the bar room, and they would be singing all the time. And they'd be singing a particular way with a particular kind of phrasing. Came out of different, it came out of different things too. It came out of African chants, came out of the, the, the religious uh, things that came out of, a, um, again, different kinds of tuning. They, they would use, uh, this gets this for the musicians, they would use a third that, uh, that, you know, like if it was in the key of C, a note that's sort of between E flat and E and a little bit unstable, and some other ones. A lot of the songs are really in four or five pitches. And it, it, that would lend itself to a certain kind of uh, choral singing, where you would sing along, but not exactly sing along. So it's getting back to this idea of, that you can learn a lot from the soundscape. You can't reconstruct that. You have to grow up in that. They're in the, what, no matter if humanity can last another several million years, we're not going to be able to reconstruct that again. It will not happen. We can learn from it and love it and appreciate it um, and use it as a basis of our own work. But that itself is never going to happen. That's not going to happen. Um, analogous to the way that if we have a species that we lose, we're, we're, it's not, we can maybe one day with technology, we can sort of reproduce it, but it's not going to be the same thing. So uh, can we learn a lot from soundscape was your original question. I'd say, yeah, I believe we can learn a tremendous amount from soundscape. Can I give you a record to listen to? Yeah, sure. There's a record that 
this fellow Lomax who I was talking about before recorded. And I just listened to it again for the first time in many years. It's called Blues in the Mississippi Night. And it was recorded in 1947 as a conversation in New York City by three great musicians from the Mississippi area. Memphis Slim is really from Memphis, but Memphis is, is on the border of Mississippi. Uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, the uh, original Sonny Boy Williamson, there were two of them. And, uh, and uh, uh, Big Bill Brunzi. And it was so controversial because they were talking about racism in the Deep South that they, they didn't want their own names uh, reported. So it was released 10 years later because they were even worried about releasing it in the 40s. So they released it in the late 50s, each of them having false names. And it was only years after that, I think maybe even after all three of them died, that they said who those, those real musicians are. So you hear them singing, playing, and telling stories about the songs and what the songs are associated with. And you will get a better understanding of that world than any other hour you could possibly, um, than any other hour you could possibly spend. So that would be an example of how you can learn about another time and place through its music and art. Wow, excellent. Definitely going to look this up. So just trying to be mindful of your time. I was wondering if you could tell us what kind of outstanding questions still keep you up at night and what else do you want to discover in this field? Well, in our lab, we're, we're trying to understand that uh, how do you associate sound with a particular meaning? So we're starting to try to unravel the synaptic basis of uh, say it's a, a sound, you learn that a sound means uh, mother or food is over there or there's danger or there's safety, uh, this, this kind of thing. Uh, what actually changes in the brain as this occurs? So to me, this is a very fundamental question that we've only had the tools to begin to answer over the last few years, but I think we can really learn a lot. And, and maybe a graduate student in the lab has figured out the central synapse where all this stuff is integrated. Of course, we don't actually know this. This is just what our results and data indicate to us so far. Um, so that's a question that uh, keeps me up at night. Another one that I'm really bothers me a great deal right now is uh, what are neurodevelopmental disorders like autism, OCD, and I would include schizophrenia here. What are they really? What is, they do have a biological basis. What the heck is it? And there's so much to be learned in that. Genetics is helping a lot. It's absolutely essential, but it's only one part of what's going to be essential to understand this. Especially, you know, when you have these many cases where there can be identical twins who develop uh, differently. Now, of course, that could happen. That could still be genetics in a way. For instance, it could be the immune systems involved. And even identical twins have different uh, immune systems. But there's probably additional things going on. And uh, so to me, to understand neurodevelopmental diseases, we must actually study development 
And there's surprisingly little that's been done about it. Um, so we make our lab concentrate on that. I think we're learning a lot, but there's a lot more to be learned. And a lot of these disorders genuinely are not understood on a, on a pragmatic scientific level. There's a lot more to be done. And I think that, you know, it's a hypothesis, but I think the more we understand it, the better we'll be able to treat people with these disorders, um, at least eventually, maybe, maybe sooner than we can imagine right now. Um, and then just like you're interested in uh, diseases of neurodegeneration. We particularly work on Parkinson's, but we're interested in many of the other ones too. So a lot of questions that of the different, uh, of the different uh, major questions that I just laid out for you, that is probably the one that's moving the fastest right now. And uh, it's, uh, as I'm sure you agree, it's a very exciting uh, place to be. Every few years, there's a, really quite a major discovery that changes our mind about how, how these uh, things work. And um, as, you know, medical science has been successful in a lot of ways and people live to be much older. And so these diseases that used to affect only a small fraction of people now affect a much, you know, a large fraction of people. So we're going to have to, uh, for me, the diseases of the young and the old are both things that, that we must focus on. So that together with uh, the idea of synaptic plasticity and how you integrate the environment and, and learning and develop your personality, I, I would say those are the, the major questions I have. Yeah, for sure, those are super interesting. Good, I'm glad you think so. <laughs> <laughs> so where can our listeners find more information about your work and also your book? Well, the book is easy to order. Um, it's on all the, you know, Barnes and Noble and Amazon. And, uh, you can order directly from the press, which is the Columbia University Press. So that's, it's very easy to get. Uh, don't get the hardcover copy. They sell that to libraries. That's over a hundred American dollars. The, uh, the paperback in America is $28, uh, of which I supposedly get one or $2, but in fact, I don't get anything as far as I know. Um, and, uh, uh, 28 bucks in New York City will buy you two glasses of wine, and I'm confident it's about the same amount on. So that I don't, I think, get the paperback. Um, then for our science, gee, for our science, uh, we have a lot of uh, review papers, and some of them are going to be useful for uh, you know general readership. Obviously, some are are made for the cognoscenti. And I apologize for that, but as scientists, we have to do that. Otherwise, we'd have to, (laughs) our review articles would be 10 times longer if we had to spell everything out from the beginning. That's that's just sort of how it is. So uh, I I would say, uh, like with any scientist, a good place to start is PubMed, which is run from NIH. So, you know, website and many, many, many of the articles are, are free to, uh, to download. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today and for this insightful discussion. Thank you too, Galena. Appreciate it and look forward to hearing how uh, the, rest of your, uh, uh, the rest of your time in the laboratory is, is developing.